0: Well, if you would open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And you will find our passage this morning on page 1002 in that Bible. And if you're new with us and you're curious what translation the Bible are using, we we regularly preach from and read the English Standard Version. So that's what you see there in front of you. Hebrews chapter 3, we will be beginning our sermon text this morning in verse 5. Hebrews 3 5, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Fathers, we take a moment now to distill to our hearts and our thoughts to look to your word and to hear from your word. I ask that you would speak through your word. In the same way this, this church heard he, uh, Psalm 95 preached to them that we would hear Psalm 95 preached to a church and then take that message and apply it today. Father, we know we can't have your spirit applying your word to our hearts if our hearts are hard so we pray right now that you'd soften our hearts and that by being together in, in your presence with your Holy Spirit among us with your word proclaimed to us that we would hear the word and be encouraged and that by hearing and being encouraged, being encouraged God that we would be able by your power to persevere all the way to the end, that we wouldn't be any of those who stumbled in the wilderness. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are right now in Sermon 2 of a seven-week series on the church and so this week we are in part two of, of our uh, hearing from God's word about what it means to belong to the church, what it means to be a member of a church. And for the next two weeks, we'll be talking about who the servants of the church are, this is the deacons, and then finally we'll wrap that this conversation about the church up with looking to God's word about who the pastors of the church are. But... Now, let's look at some more about what it means to be members of a church. Last week, on this topic, we heard the challenge from the Apostle Paul to be the church, if you remember that. Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3 tell us about what our calling is as a church. That, that it would be through the church that the glory of God in Christ would be made known to the entire world. And then Ephesians chapter 4 all the way to chapter 6 tell us how to live that out. And we focused particularly in on, on Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. And if you if you missed that, you'll want to go back and listen. And we saw that because of what Christ has created in the church, this, this real and actual unity that the Spirit has made in us, we have to make an effort to To make that unity visible to the watching world, because it's that unity in Christ that we have together that makes the gospel message that we proclaim easier to hear. It makes it believable. But I want to remind you of something else that we sort of breezed past when we were looking in Ephesians. We looked at it, but only briefly. It's not just that our witness, witness to the watching world is dependent on our unity together. There was someone else, Paul said, was watching the church. You remember this? Let me remind you of what Paul said in Ephesians 3.10. I think we have that passage up here. He said, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he doesn't mention anything about that until you get to chapter 6. In Ephesians. Those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Paul is not talking about the good guys. There is, over this world, a darkness under the domain of those rulers and authorities. And when Jesus Christ died to save his bride, the church And then through the church continues his mission to call all who would belong to the church to himself. Those were fighting words to the rulers and authorities. God was making known through the work of Christ in and through the church. He's making known to those spiritual rulers and authorities. That's Satan and his minions. He's making known that the battle's begun. Jesus Christ is, is reclaiming what is rightfully his. That's why when you get to the end of Ephesians, after Paul tells us how we are to live as a church, he says in Ephesians 6, right at the end, this isn't going to be easy. The darkness isn't just going to keel over without a fight. Look at how Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Many of you might know this verse. He says, finally, he's talking to the church. So, finally, church, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See what he's saying? Those rulers and authorities that God is making his wisdom known to, they're going to scheme against the church. The empire strikes back. (laughs) Paul goes on there in Ephesians 6, and he says, church then, because this is going to happen arm yourself so that you can withstand these attacks. And if you're, if you're looking for it, as you read the Bible, you'll see that all of the New Testament writers recognize this danger. This is especially visible in Hebrews, which is where our text comes from this morning. I think the writer to the Hebrews is most keenly aware of this danger because his church is being attacked right before his eyes. False teachers have gained influence in the church, and many people within the church have been taken captive to their message. And they're being tempted to, to question the effectiveness, the effectiveness of Christ's work for them. They're being called to go back to the old ways. And so so, so the writer warns them several times in the book of Hebrews, Watch out. Be aware. Pay attention. Several times in the book, he essentially says this, repeated refrain, guard yourselves, or else you will be led astray, away from Christ, away from the hope that God has given you. In our passage this morning in Hebrews 3, we see one of these warnings against falling away, but we also see a a preventative warning A preventative that protects us from this this tragedy. And verses 12 and 13 is sort of the the center of this passage. That's where we see the main point of the text. Look there with me. Chapter 3 in Hebrews, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the warning. Right? You see it? Take care. That's a very clear warning. Watch out. And then the application is there immediately following it. In verse 13. Watch out. Take care or else you'll fall away. Instead, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Basically, you see, don't get sick and die. Take your medicine. Don't fall away exhort one another every day. So that's, that's, the, that's the argument right there at the center of Hebrews 3. Let's see how he builds up to this argument, though. If you want to follow with me, keep your Bibles open. That's what we do here. Hebrews chapter 3, let's see how he builds up to this argument. The writer begins in verses 5 and 6, there in Hebrews, basically drawing an analogy between the church that he's preaching to and Israel. God's people that were taken out of Egypt, redeemed out of Egypt. Moses was the head of Israel. He led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is the greater head of all God's people, his household. See that in verses five and six? And then he says that we, he's talking about himself and the church he's preaching to, but it applies to us. We, together, those who claim to be God's people, we are his household. We're, we're in his family. But he doesn't stop there. He says, we're only proved to be his household if. <laughs> Ifs are hard, aren't they? If, what? If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And he says that again. You just leave that there like I accidentally wrote this down. No, he says it again. Look at verse 14. We have come to share in Christ together as his household. We've come to share in Christ if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All those who are saved by Christ are saved by faith. But all saving faith is persevering faith. We're only finally saved if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Notice the boasting's not in ourselves, is it? We aren't saved by confidence in ourselves or anything we've done. We're not saved by our boasting in ourselves. We are ultimately saved because of Christ's work. So our faith is in Him, our hope is in Him. And hoping in him, our lives are transformed. Interesting that he uses the word hope, isn't it? We don't talk about hope very much. It's not one of those regular Christian vocabulary words. This is what he means by by hope when he talks about that. When you first believed that Christ saved you from your sin, if you're a Christian... You were not saved totally. All right, let me tell you what I mean by that. Your total, final, complete salvation comes when we are glorified at Christ's return. Alright? You and I don't have that yet. What we have right now is hope in that day. We have hope in our future salvation. We're hoping... We're waiting expectantly for the glory of God. That's the return of Christ when death is finally defeated and we live in eternity with him. That's our hope. But we don't have that, the object of our hope right now. But we do have something, right? We have right standing before God right now. Romans 5.1 says that already we've been justified before God by faith. That's past tense. We have been justified. It's already been accomplished. We have justification. That is, we have right standing with God right now before Him. Through Christ. And that comes by faith. We also have right now the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, or through 14 says this, and this is what pulls it together. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We don't have possession of our inheritance yet. We're waiting for it. But the Spirit seals us until that time to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who indwells us as a guarantee that we belong to God. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us for the day of redemption. He's the one who keeps us for salvation. So so if you now say, I have been saved... Here's what you mean by that. What you're really saying is that because of Christ's work in justifying you before God, and because the Spirit has borne in you faith in that reality, you have a hope. You have a hope in future salvation. It's secure. It's secure. But it's not complete yet. So the writer to the Hebrews all that aside, the writer of the Hebrews is saying in verse 6, Hebrews 3, 6, that we are proven to be a part of God's family, that inheritance. We're proven to be a part of God's family if we endure in that hope all the way to the end. If we hold fast to that hope all the way. And then the, the writer, if you're still following, the writer reminds us of a group of people who didn't hold fast to their hope. He quotes for us that passage that Amy read for us earlier, Psalm 95, word for word. Psalm 95 is an allusion to Numbers 14. When God's people had been rescued from Egypt, and after years of wandering, they were very near the promised land. In fact, they could see the promised land but to keep them from going in blindly, God commands them to send 12 scouts in. You remember this story? He says, send out 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe. And if you're familiar with this story, you'll remember that, that they go in and see that the land is rich, just as God said it would be. It's bountiful, just as God said it would be. But the people are big. They're really big. And the armies are really big. Two of the scouts... Caleb and Joshua say God will protect us, we'll be fine we can go in, we've got this he has brought us from Egypt all the way here, he's going to be faithful to the end and the other ten they say no, we'll die we can't do this and these naysayers, they stir up the entire nation all the crowds, and the people start freaking out and they say let's go back to slavery in Egypt, that would be better that is, two, had faith. They were steadfast in their hope that God would be true to his word, and the other ten did not believe God, and and their disbeliefs spread, because it so easily does, spread to the others. And so if you keep reading in Numbers 14 and 15, God determined because of the unbelief of the people that the entire nation would wander in the desert for 40 years. One year for each of the 40 days that those scouts had the privilege of being in the land. And the ten men who doubted God and led the rebellion, they were cursed with a plague and they died, and everybody 20 years and older... You guys are safe. (laughs) Everybody 20 years and older who grumbled against God didn't trust in him, they eventually died in their wanderings in, in the wilderness. Only the next generation of Israelites and those two chief scouts were allowed into the land. That's, that's the reference that the writer of the Hebrews is referring to when he refers to Psalm 95, which is referring to Numbers 14. The, those who believed God and entered the promised land are those who proved to be a part of God's household. They were the recipients of the promise, of the inheritance. Those who did not believe him had no part in the inheritance. And so, so by including this passage from Psalms in Hebrews 3, the apostle is giving us a warning, isn't he? Seeing that that hardening of the heart, that falling away from unbelief. That can happen to you. It's a warning, because we have not arrived yet. And then in in verses 16 through 19, that comes after the main point there, he repeats the exact same thing. Those who didn't enter the promised land didn't enter because of unbelief. That's the framework, the, the sandwich pieces that go around verses 12 and 13, the core of the teaching that we're looking at. Those warnings stand on either side. And that is meant as a frame to make this instruction really stand out brightly to us. So let's look closely again at, at verse 12. Look how he puts this. He doesn't just give us this empty, be careful warning and walks away. There's a redeeming depth to this warning. Look at it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That, take care. That is, you can't see it clearly in the English. It's a second person plural. Right? So if we were to better translate this into Southern English, God's English, it would say, brothers, y'all take care. Y'all watch out. It's a collective you all. All of you brothers, as one, take care, keep an eye out for one another. We are to protect one another from this falling away. That's a little more directed, isn't it? And then he keeps going. Look at verse 13. This is how we're to do that. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian, listen, this means that you are the means that God uses to keep your brothers and sisters in Christ from being hardened by sin. Do you feel the weight of that? (laughs) Sin is so deceitful, it so suddenly invades our lives from within our own hearts and from the attractiveness of the world around us that if we do not have brothers and sisters in Christ helping us to be wary of it, we will fall away. Not we might, not we probably will, we will fall away. You cannot live the Christian life alone. That is not Christianity. You were not saved to be a better you. You were saved into the body of Christ to help the body of Christ mature into Christ's likeness. It doesn't matter what part of the body you are. You're not self-sufficient. None of us is. God has created you to be reliant on the rest of the body so that you'll persevere to the end. That's how he makes Christians dependent on one another. It takes somebody else with the spirit in them to say, hey, you seem really angry. What's going on today? What's going on in your heart? It takes someone else with the spirit to ask you how much time you're wasting on the internet. It it takes someone else to point out to you that you're neglecting your kids or that you're being harsh with your wife or disrespectful towards your husband. Only another Christian can see your bitterness and call it out to you as sin. Other Christians will be able to tell you when you're being deceived by false teaching, when you're being led astray. They're they're the ones that God has given us to say, hey, that that aspect of your life that you seem really committed to, that might be an idol. That might be something you're worshiping worshiping in place of Jesus Christ. Friends, God has given us one another not to entertain one another, but so that we could protect one another from falling away. Sin is so deceitfully destructive that on our own, we can't tell what's going on in our own hearts. It blinds us. But grace, God's gift to us, is so generously given by Him through God's people that we are meant to be kept from being deceived by sin because of it. When we're with one another, when we're present with one another, when God's grace is working through you to encourage me, that keeps me from being deceived by sin. On the battlefield, when a brother, deluded by sin, has apparently taken off his spiritual armor, we are the ones who are to throw ourselves over our brother and drag him back to the safety of fellowship. We don't just stand there and say, poor guy, (laughs) and then turn around and walk away and say, well, if he's really a Christian, he'll come back. After all, we don't want to hurt his feelings, right? We, We don't want to embarrass him. That's not our place. No, it is your place. Hurting his feelings is the most loving thing you can do. Stranding a brother or sister alone in their sin, that's wicked, It's hateful. It's despising them. It is sinful disobedience to Christ for us to ignore them. If he's really a Christian, if he's really been renewed by the Spirit of Christ, then God is going to be using you to keep him a Christian. Let me read for you an excerpt from the book Habits of Grace by David Mathis kind of an extended quote alright if you, if you are this is a plug for the book All right, it's called Habits of Grace David Mathis it's on the spiritual disciplines if you haven't read it and you're struggling with your, your own spiritual disciplines read it and we'll talk about it come talk to me after you read it David Mathis says this fellowship May be the often forgotten middle child. You can tell he's probably a middle child. Fellowship may be the often forgotten middle child of the spiritual disciplines, but she may save your life in the dark night of your soul. As you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, and the shepherd comforts you with his staff, you will discover that he has fashioned his people to act as his rod of rescue when the desire to avail yourself of hearing his voice in his word has dried up and when your spiritual energy is gone to speak to him in prayer God sends his body to bring you back it's typically not the wanderer's own efforts that prompt him to return to the fold but his brothers being to him a priceless means of God's grace the invaluable backstop. Church, we are the means that God has created to keep his people in the faith, to sustain them to the end. The the Hebrew's writer says, to do that, we have to exhort one another, doesn't he? That word exhort is from the Greek word parakaleo, which is the verb form of paraclete, and that's the name that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. As a verb, that word has an enormous range. It can mean to encourage, it can mean to, to comfort, to correct, to counsel, to help, to console, to defend, to advocate for. Basically, think of it this way. It means to do anything, or it means anything that one soldier will do for another soldier on the battlefield. To keep him alive. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, does his paracleting through you. He does his exhorting and encouragement and counseling and disciplining through you for his people. Christ keeps his own through his own. And then, you'll look with me in the text at verse 13, how often are we to do this exhorting for one another? Every Sunday? No. Look at the text. Every day. Every day. For a week, a month, a year? No, as long as it is called today, that's a clever allusion back to Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, 7, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you remember that? And then the Hebrews writer is saying then, Every day that you call today, keep one another from hardening your hearts. How? By encouraging one another, by correcting one another, even rebuking one another where it's needed. You do whatever is needed. To help keep your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you are the means that the Holy Spirit is using to keep the good shepherd's sheep, his own flock. You see the the big point here? So let's get practical then. What does this mean in your life as a Christian? If we are so fragile... Or better yet, if sin is so deceitful that we need to be exhorted every day, what is the best way we can do that? Well, here's how the early church did that. Let's start there. Acts 2.42 says, The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There was a devotion there to one another and to the teaching and to that fellowship they had. And that devotion was not out of emotional excitement but because of the real and true spirit wrought unity the spirit made unity among them and then if you keep going in Acts chapter 2 in verse 46 it says they were in each other's homes day by day so every day they lived their new creation lives present with one another and we read that, or at least I do, and they we think, well, that sounds like a great church. It must have been really great to be a part of that church. Isn't that neat? But that, that model is hardly attainable, is it, for us? I don't want to make excuses, but I'm going to make excuses. There are reasons why doing this is harder today. Jerusalem, that city where the Acts 2 Christians lived, that city covered about one square mile. And there were 25,000 people in one square mile. You could walk to everybody's home. And, And it wasn't just Jerusalem that was built that way. All of the New Testament churches are in cities that were built that way Colossae and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome, some bigger than others, but they were all, by today's standards, small towns that were densely populated. Most of them would have seen each other every day, whether or not they were part of the same church. They they would be working with one another. They'd see each other in the market and in the town square. And in a culture where hospitality was normal, not like ours, it, it wouldn't have been unusual to be in each other's homes. It would have been totally normal. Communal life was totally normal for them. It's different now, isn't it? It's very different. I live in East County, basically West Yuma, and some of you live in La Mesa. Some of you are in El Cajon, and some of you are in Hamul, and some of you are in Poway. Some of you are in the city. We're all spread out. There's dozens of zip codes represented just in this room. Our county alone, I don't know if you knew this, our county is bigger than the southern kingdom of Judah. Only a few of us can walk to another member's home. Only a couple of us can walk to the church building. So trying to apply first century commands, like exhort one another every day, to today, that's, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, we can text one another, we can give one another a call or an email and encourage one another, but this living this out face to face is nearly impossible. And while that's true the deceitfulness of sin has not diminished. If anything, sin that would have once taken a lot of effort to accomplish is now more accessible than it ever was. If you want to commit an adultery, there's an app for that. How about gossip? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Fornication? Tinder. Lying, cheating, stealing, slothfulness, anxiety, love of money, we could just keep going, couldn't we? All of those things are easier with your phone. And you can be more anonymous than you ever could have been in the past. In the history of the world, sin is not less deceitful, but fellowship is harder. Sin is easier and more deceitful than ever, and yet Christian fellowship is harder, and not just geographically harder. Over time, our culture, our Western culture, has made individualism such a value that these more communal ideals of the New Testament, they're like foreign language to us. can't even comprehend the, the, the types of community they had, because individualism is so rampant in our culture. So we have to overcome cultural limitations and geographical limitations that these churches didn't have. And yet, God's design for the church hasn't changed. The church, the body of Christ, is still the means that the Holy Spirit works through to keep his people from falling away. It hasn't changed. So what do we do then? Seems kind of hopeless. Well, for one, as often as we can, we do need to be together. In Hebrews 10:23, the apostle says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's almost exactly what he said in chapter 3. Remember, in chapter 3, 6, we just covered this: hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then in 1023, hold fast the confession of our hope. See the similarity? And then if you, if you look even closer, Christ is faithful in 3.6 and he's faithful in 10.23. These are the twin verses with very similar applications. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider together how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. There's that word, parakaleo. Again, exerting, or, uh, exhorting, encouraging, counseling, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. That day is judgment day, the return of Christ. So again, he says, encourage one another, but we have to do that by meeting together. So don't neglect meeting together. Meeting together for worship is the most fundamental way that we put into practice this command to exhort one another. We can't be an encouragement to one another, really. We can't defend one another from sin if we're not around one another. This is the type of community that we are being called to. But even then, I think we all realize just meeting together is not enough, is it? As as independent-minded people, we have the remarkable power of avoiding exhortation even if we see each other every week. How, how easy, and I'm not just talking about Del Cere, every church everywhere, how, how easy is it to just show up for worship and then walk out without talking to anyone? It's very easy. The bigger the church, the easier. And how, how easy is it When we do talk to one another, to keep that conversation shallow, limited, keep it in the entryway, right? Like like we're stuck on an elevator together. Pretty day, isn't it? It's cloudy, June gloom. How about those Padres, right? Just by being in proximity to one another, we give each other permission to ask shallow questions. It's an unwritten rule of our own culture. So, so we're allowed to talk about house projects. We're allowed to talk about sports and restaurants we like. And if we're kind of close, like we've met maybe two or three times, we can talk about physical illnesses. And according to these rules, we're allowed to talk about other people. And we're allowed to talk about going shopping and getting haircuts and movies and books and TV and recipes and the weather. Right? And when it comes to churchy stuff... We give each other permission, based on these common rules, to talk about the physical functions of the church, the finances and the programs and the building, and whether we like the music today or how cold or hot it was in the sanctuary. That's normal. Every organization where people gather has these unwritten rules that allow for these types of conversations. We're allowed to talk to each other about these surface-level things that we have in common with one another. That's not terrible. We're we're trying to be friendly, right? This isn't sinful. Okay, so don't I'm not beating you up or myself, because I do this too. But but when was the last time somebody asked you in the context of church, how's your soul? When was the last time someone asked you, Where are you struggling with sin? Has anybody asked you lately, are you stewarding the resources God has entrusted to you, or are you hoarding them? Has anybody asked you, how's your marriage? Has anybody asked you, are you being faithful to your spouse, or are you loving your children, or if you're single? Has anybody asked you, if you're stewarding your singleness to the glory of God? Has anybody asked you how your time with the Lord is going or if you're praying and you're hearing from God in His Word. Or has anybody asked you how God is changing you and making you more like Christ? Those are all questions that there was a visible cringe in the room when I read. For all of us, when we hear those questions, our chest gets tight and we start looking for the green signs. Those types of questions require a deep, trusting relationship that builds over time. A church cannot be expected to go from shallow conversation to these deep, soul-probing questions overnight. I don't expect us to. But if we are the means that God is using to keep us all in Christ, then we've got to be willing to die to the cringiness and the awkwardness and the discomfort of asking those questions. That takes time, doesn't it? But, but we don't just say, well, that takes time and then not do anything about it and say so we're just not there yet. Here's the thing. We should be building toward that way of relating to one another as Christians at Del Cero. It does not and will not happen naturally. As a church, we have to put scaffolding into place to build in that direction. Because if we just build naturally, we just keep everything, the bricks stay on the ground. But if the scaffolding is in place, if we put structures in place to help build the church towards that goal, then we can do it. The Spirit can do it through us. And do you know where that starts? Probably know where I'm going with this. Do you know what the foundation to those types of meaningful relationships are? It's church membership. Meaningful church membership is the foundational structure we are currently developing in our context to help ensure that Christians who gather here are committed to one another in Christ in the way that God has called us to. See, when when Christians covenant with one another in meaningful membership, we're saying to one another, I give you permission to ask me difficult questions about my life and about my faith. And I give you that permission because I know that you love me and that God is using you to keep me in the faith. Right now, as we currently stand, our membership is without a covenant. That means we, we, we kind of understand our commitment to one another, but it's not been very explicit. And I'm hoping that in July's newsletter, you will see a proposal for such a covenant, and you'll be able to look over it, and then a month from today, we'll have the opportunity to approve and covenant together as a membership of the church what exactly it means to belong together. To, to make these promises that God's word says we should be making to one another. All right? so, so here's three takeaways for you here. If you are a member here, get ready. Because over, not just with the covenant, but over the entire next year, we're going to be working to make membership here more meaningful. We, as your pastors, will be working to put helpful structures in place that bring greater accountability to one another. Because we love one another. Because we love you. We don't want to see people fall away because of our neglect. That's if you're a member. If you regularly gather here with our church and you're not a member, I want to encourage you to consider it. Talk to me after the service, or call the office, or shoot me an email I'd love to get you started in this process. If there is some theological reason that is keeping you from joining our church, whatever it is, whether it's our views on baptism because we're a Baptist church or it's something I've said in my preaching, whatever it is, there are dozens of gospel-proclaiming Christ-centered churches in our area that you should join. Well, just attend any church, and then refuse to covenant with those people. God is calling you so that he can use you to be an encouragement to them, but that takes commitment, doesn't it? People have to know, this person is committed to me. I can trust them. And you have to know that you can trust them. And that comes through covenant commitment together. That comes through these faithful promises that we make to one another. The third takeaway is this. If you are not a Christian, so if you're here because you're exploring the faith, someone invited you that loves you and wants to to ensure that you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and you've been coming and you've been thinking about it. If you're exploring the faith and you want to learn more, I hope that this is clear to you. Christianity is not something you can just make a decision about and then go back to business as usual. I hope you've seen the commitment that discipleship in Christ is. You just, this isn't just for you. Christ is calling you to himself for all the people in here entering into union with Christ means you are entering into fellowship with his people and then they will be the means along with the Word of God that your faith is sustained. you can't do it alone and if you think you can, you're not ready to make that commitment yet. So keep reading keep reading, keep talking to the to the Christians that you know that are investing in you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you show us who we are in Christ. I thank you so much that you have not called any one of us into Christ alone. Every one of us here knows our own weakness.